From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think about what it is that allowed me, a three-time cancer surviving, fully blind Iranian-American from a mixed-religion immigrant family, to serve in this role. It is the welcoming spirit and the desire to continually renew ourselves as a country. That's Cyrus Habib, the lieutenant governor of Washington State, and he has a remarkable life story. He's a Rhodes Scholar, a Soros Fellow, and a graduate of Yale Law School. And now, Habib is the first Iranian-American ever elected to statewide office in the U.S. I talked to Cyrus about his remarkable life, the upcoming midterm elections, and the future for the Democratic Party. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Ideally, you'd have enough time to cook dinner every night. But life is really busy. Podcasts, books, keeping up with the never-ending Trump news. So there are days you don't have time to make dinner. And you don't want to sit around waiting for takeout. Instead of wasting 20 minutes stressing about what to have for dinner, you can use that time to prepare your own delicious healthy meal with new quick and easy meal plan from Sunbasket. Sunbasket's meal kits always make it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. And now, getting a meal on the table is even faster and more foolproof with Sunbasket's new quick and easy meal plan. You get pre-measured, easy-to-prep ingredients and organic produce delivered to your door. And each quick and easy recipe is designed to take about 20 minutes to prepare. Cook dishes like super-fast Thai turkey lettuce cups or simple sausage tacos with bell pepper, chili salsa, and queso fresco. Sunbasket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh organic produce and responsibly sourced meats and seafood. And they offer paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean options, and more. Go to sunbasket.com preet today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com preet for $35 off. sunbasket.com preet. All right, let's get to your questions. Hey, Preet, this is Maya from Sacramento. I want to ask you what you think about the decision that Judge Ellis made in the Manafort trial to not sequester the jury. Could this move allow jurors to be influenced by the media or by the president's tweets? Could this impact the outcome of the trial or have influence on possible appeals by either side? I love your show. Keep up the great work. And I'll see you in Davis this October. Thank you, Maya, for your question. Also, great name. So it's a good question you ask about Judge Ellis. You know, there was a lot of controversy throughout the trial with respect to some of the rulings that Judge Ellis entered and also some of the back and forth he had. We've talked about it in the podcast, some of the back and forth he had uh, with the prosecution. So now we have the conclusion of that trial, conviction on eight counts, hung on 10 counts. So to the extent people thought that what Judge Ellis was doing was going to in some way uh, tank the prosecution case because he looked like he was not favorable to them. That clearly didn't come to pass. The prosecution didn't win convictions on all counts, but eight counts is pretty significant, and they didn't lose a single count. They only had hung juries on those counts. So like I said, I think a week or two ago, sometimes what matters are the facts and the evidence uh, more than anything else. And what a judge does, or what a judge says, whether it's corrected or not, doesn't have as much of an impact. 
Now, on the question of the sequestering of the jury, you know, traditionally, you know, there's no hard and fast rule. There's no regulation somewhere that says, under these particular kinds of circumstances, do you sequester a jury? First of all, sequestering a jury is expensive. It's cumbersome. Jurors don't like it. They like to be able to, you know, be free in the world and not feel like they themselves are prisoners, like the defendant may be. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge burden on people who are already burdening themselves by engaging the civic duty. So I don't think you want to do it lightly. Second, the most common scenario in which you do that is when there's, you know, threat of danger or harm to the jury. And that is typically in, you know, a very intense violent gang case or in a mafia case. We had sequestered juries from time to time in the Southern District of New York also. Now, throughout most of the proceedings here, there was really not any whiff of imminent harm or danger to the jury. At one point, you may remember, the judge, in deciding a motion on whether or not the names of the jurors were going to be given out, said that he had been subjected to some threat, unspecified. But generally, I don't think there was a lot of you know danger of harm. The jury was anonymous, which actually helps them somewhat from you know being harassed by reporters and other folks. But the heart of your question is, you know, how do you make sure that they're not influenced by things that are said in the press about the case? You know, it's hard to avoid that. In your standard case, I think people believe and trust that the jury follows the pretty strong instruction of the court not to read about the case. And that is not that difficult to accomplish in your garden variety, even high-profile case. The point you raise is a good one, though. I don't know that it was anticipated by this judge, although maybe it should have been, that the president himself was going to be tweeting in a way that was directly focused on the Manafort case, calling him a good guy, saying that he was treated unfairly. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of a worry when you have a president acting like that and talking like that. At the end of the day, it's, it's impossible to know what effect you know, some tweets by Trump may have had, but it's pretty common in cases like this not to sequester. Hi, Pre. This is Tony Mills from Atlanta, Georgia. Love your show, and I have a 99% success rate in recommending it to others. The last constitutional amendment was the 27th Amendment passed over a quarter century ago. My question, Preet, is when do you think another constitutional amendment will be considered and passed? Thanks, Preet. Hi, Tony. Thanks for your question. 99%. I, I would like you to get that up to 100% persuasion rate. Work on that. Thanks. So, look, constitutional amendments are really hard to pass. I've been thinking a little bit about it in connection with the Democracy Task Force that I'm co-chairing with Governor Whitman that you may have heard about if you're a diligent listener of the pod. And, um, you know, some of the things that we've talked about historically are, you know, the change to the Constitution with respect to how many terms a president can serve. You know, after Franklin Roosevelt got elected four times, people decided, even though he was a popular president, that we would amend the Constitution to limit the terms to two which I think was a good thing, even though I think most historians agree that Roosevelt was a very good president and saved us from lots of things, including Nazism. These days, what we're discussing, and I think what should legitimately be under review, particularly if the president exceeds, I think, good judgment further, is restricting the presidential pardon. It's probably the place in the Constitution where a president has the most unfettered power, and so people keep excusing his deciding to go outside the guidelines and go outside uh, the recommendations of the pardon attorney and just decide on his own based on a whim or you know connection to somebody famous that he'll pardon this person rather than that person. But there's a real concern now that the president will, in some sense, abuse his power by deciding to pardon people who are in a position to harm him, 
or pardon people that are very close to him in what I think most people would think would be an unfair way. And there's even some debate, and some people suggest that it's not clear uh, whether or not the president could pardon himself. I think most people think you can't do that. It doesn't make a lot of sense, given the text and structure of the Constitution. It doesn't make a lot of common sense. It doesn't make sense in the context of what seems fair in the world. But the fact that we have these concerns and the fact that we have these debates, and we might be faced with an actual assertion of that kind of power, make me think that the pardon power is the place where smart people should be focusing their energy a little bit. And we might be, uh, I don't know yet, but we might be making some recommendation with respect to the pardon power as part of our task force recommendations. Uh, While we're on the subject of amending the Constitution, I would also suggest, perhaps, that Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution could use a tweak. You know, there's that thing about natural-born citizen. I'll leave it at that. Next question is in a tweet from Amy M. The tweet reads, Thanks for the great podcast. Could you please clarify the law regarding pleading the fifth after being pardoned? Hashtag AskPreet. So this is a common question and it's confusing to non-lawyers. Now remember, pleading the fifth is a reference to your right in the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution against incriminating yourself. And it's a very powerful protection that not all countries have, not all criminal justice systems have. It means you can't be compelled to be a witness against yourself. Now, you only have the right to assert the Fifth Amendment if you can make a showing that to speak would, in fact, incriminate yourself or subject you to legal peril, right? So let's say you uh, there's some possibility that someone could show because you drove someone to the bank robbery to be compelled to testify about your driving your friend to the bank robbery could incriminate you because you could be considered an aider and a better or a, you know, a co-conspirator of the bank robbery, and you have not been charged with it. So we say those circumstances that you have the right to plead the fifth, because otherwise you'd be in some amount of legal trouble. On the other hand, if you are in no legal jeopardy, because nothing can be done to you, then there's no risk of testifying, because you're home free. And one way in which you can be home free is having been pardoned. So the same example I used a second ago, if you were the person who drove your friend to the bank robbery, and for whatever reason... You happen to be buddy-buddy with a Kardashian, and the Kardashian convinced President Trump to preemptively pardon you for driving your friend to the bank. Now, you can't be prosecuted any longer for your conduct connected to the bank robbery. And in that circumstance, if some body, like a congressional body or a prosecutor's office, wanted you to testify about what you did that day, you would not have the ability to say you refuse and you could be compelled to testify. So the pardon scenario is relatively rare because presidential pardons are rare. But the way this comes up uh, more frequently is that sometimes prosecutors will give you immunity, meaning you're off the hook not because of a presidential pardon, but you're off the hook because you've been granted immunity from prosecution for the thing that you're worried about. So as the driver of the car, and this happens much more frequently, prosecutors may decide it's really important that they have your testimony to implicate and prosecute the person who did the bank robbery, and they take away your concern about being self-incriminating by giving you a grant of immunity. So it's not that different from that. The pardon scenario, the immunity scenario, the bottom line is if you no longer have to worry about the threat of being imprisoned for your crime, you can't plead the fifth. And one more thing. So a fun thing that you may have seen that I did last week was I flew out to Los Angeles and was a guest on uh, HBO, Bill Maher's Real Time. 
And I did the interview at the top of the show. And then there was a segment, a special segment that they don't put on television, but it's on the internet in which Bill Maher sort of surprised me and asked me the following question. Preet, how has the Trump family gone so many years in New York City without facing major prosecution? Great question. I would love to know that. She gets the easy one. Yeah. He gets the... <laughs> My bad. <laughs> so it was the end of the show, and it's supposed to be comedy, and I had not said anything particularly funny before that. So that's how I answered that question. And I'm not suggesting that members of the Trump family have necessarily committed crimes or that we should have pursued criminal prosecutions of any particular members of the Trump family. But from time to time, you know, what people wonder is how it can be, whether it's Harvey Weinstein or someone else, how it can be that they get away with their misconduct, or Michael Cohen, for that matter, who just pled guilty, how people we come to learn have committed crimes. Looking back, how did they get away with it for so long? And it's a frustrating thing, taking it outside the context of the Trump family, because it's a serious question, whether it's Bernie Madoff or the priests in Pennsylvania Prosecutors can't find every criminal or prosecute every criminal. Sometimes we come upon investigations because there's been, as I've said before on the show, an intrepid investigative reporter who shines a light on something and you know shows us where we should be looking. Sometimes you have whistleblowers inside companies. Sometimes you have people who confess to bad things they've been doing that leads you to you know other criminal activity. But you know people have a certain amount of security and privacy in this country. And it's difficult, but I understand it's frustrating. It's difficult for prosecutors to sort of walk into their office one day and say, you know what, there's a family over there that seems to have a lot of money, or there's a company over there that seems to be really successful. And without a credible allegation, piece of evidence that a line has been crossed, or a crime has been committed, or unethical behavior pervades the place, it's not clear to me that prosecutors should be you know, engaging in aggressive, provocative legal process everywhere they look. I don't think people want to live in a country like that. And it's sometimes true, whether you're talking about Paul Manafort or Michael Cohen, that when people start legitimately pursuing an investigation of one thing, say the Russia investigation, what people call collusion, when you start looking under rocks, particularly you know rocks owned by generally unethical or corrupt people, you may find other crimes that they committed. And that's how a lot of crime gets prosecuted and a lot of people are held accountable. Unless you have a much more serious surveillance state, I think, there are going to be people who get away with things that they shouldn't. You know, it's the balance between making sure that law enforcement holds folks accountable and making sure that people's privacy and affairs are not unduly invaded by the prying eyes of law enforcement. Look, sometimes law enforcement doesn't get it right and they miss things. And sometimes law enforcement gets it wrong in the other way and they go aggressively after something, and there's no there there. And you get in trouble for that too, and criticism for that too. We've been criticized for both. Anyway, I just thought uh, that the question was a serious one that deserved a glib and funny answer in the moment, but a more serious answer from my friends on the podcast. My guest this week is Cyrus Habib. He is the Lieutenant Governor of Washington State, He's the first Iranian-American ever to hold statewide office in the U.S., and he's widely considered a rising star in democratic politics. I'm excited to have Cyrus on the show because as I've gotten to know him over the last year, I think he is as articulate about the state of politics in America, the crisis of leadership in America, 
as anyone I've heard from over the last number of years. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. That place is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-R-E-E-T. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Life insurance is really important, but it's also really confusing. No wonder four out of 10 people don't have it. That's not good. You need to make sure your loved ones are covered, and that's why you should use Policy Genius. Policy Genius is the easy way to compare life insurance online. In just five minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find the best policy for you. And when you compare quotes, you save money. It's that simple. Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance and placed over $20 billion in coverage. If you've been putting off getting life insurance, there's no reason to put it off any longer. Go to policygenius.com, get quotes, and apply in minutes. It's that easy. You could do it right now, and you should, because rates are the lowest they've been in 20 years. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Cyrus Habib, thank you so much for being on the show. Wonderful to be here with you. I should actually call, I should call you Lieutenant Governor. You like the title. It's a pretty good title, right? I don't do this, but technically, uh, Lieutenant Governors are called Governor. Uh, but yeah, I nice, find nice that try. it's... Uh, Mike Pence says, Vice President no, I know. is usually called President. <laughs> I don't think it works yeah, that way. Yeah, no, I, 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 I like keeping a good relationship with Governor Inslee, so I, I definitely don't push for that. So, you know, you were born to Iranian immigrants, to the... United States in the early 1980s. And so you're, so you're Iranian American. But the other thing that you had to contend with, in addition to perhaps, you know, people not understanding what Iran was about, uh, was a disability. You, you went blind in one eye at age two, and then you went blind in the other eye at age eight. And you've been fully blind since then. How did you deal with that challenge as a child? I often joke that because that was in 1989. That's when I was eight years old and became blind. All eight years that I could see took place in the 1980s. So all my visual memories to this day, Preet, are still from the 1980s. So everyone still looks like Cindy Lauper and Boy George. <laughs> I look, I look more like Cindy Lauper than Boy George, just so you know. Cindy Lauper than yeah. Boy George. Yeah. It's no, it's a great, um, you know, that's, that's nothing you ever want to have happen to you, but in a way, it was the best time for it to happen because I was old enough that I had a good archive of visual memories, but young enough that I was still adaptable and was still learning things. And the idea, you know, I mean, I learned Braille when other kids learned cursive. Right. Did you begin to learn Braille as you were losing sight in the second eye? Yes. yes. The, the cancer that I had 
really is only curable by removal of the retinas. And so they knew that I was going to become blind. And um, uh, the goal of the treatment was to try to prolong my eyesight uh, as long as possible to, to give me that archive of memories uh, as a kid. But they did start to prepare me, not only by teaching me Braille, but also how to use a cane, etc. Do you remember being scared during this time when you were told how much the cancer was affecting you? Uh, how did your parents explain it to you? Like, what, what was that? I mean, being a child is difficult for, for an average child who didn't have this tremendous medical challenge that you had. How did, what is your recollection of that time? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Because I was an only child and because my parents did such a good job um, of uh, making me feel typical, I didn't really have a sense of how extraordinarily bad the situation was. Um, I lost my hair because of chemo and had to wear, you know, a baseball cap. And that was, you know, I knew that that was different. But, you know, I didn't have a benchmark of like a sibling or something to compare my life to. And my parents later told me that they kind of made a, a, a pact with one another that they would not allow their fear to become my fear. Did, have you talked to your Have you talked to your parents since, and and how hard it was for them? You know, parents are. I have three kids. People are protective of their children. They don't want any harm to come to them, and it can be difficult to hide that from a child who you're concerned about. How did your parents deal with it? Well, they did a wonderful job of of concealing their their fear from me. And when I was in third grade, and by this point we'd moved to Washington State. I was, uh, it was one of the first days of the school year and, and uh, all the kids were playing out on the playground during recess time, as kids do. Um, and the, the school district, knowing that I had recently become blind, and I think uh, more importantly, knowing that my mother was a litigator, uh, didn't want this, this blind kid playing on the jungle gym and monkey bars and swing sets and everything, you know, five feet off the ground. So while the other kids were playing, they would keep me uh, sidelined, basically, with the recess monitors. And so I went home and I told my parents, hey, you know, I'm not being allowed to play with the other kids. And um, my mom went to the school the next day and she actually she took me with her to the principal's office so that I could learn how to advocate for myself. And she said to the principal of the elementary school, I'm going to take my son to your school over the weekend, and I'm going to teach him how to get around the playground, and I'm going to teach him how to use all the playground equipment. might happen that he might slip and fall, and he might even slip and fall and break his arm. That's a fear that any mother has. But she said, I can fix a broken arm. I can never fix a broken spirit. What was the reaction of the school to that? Were they taken aback? Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, they were, this was, this was before, this was right when um, the ADA was uh, actually being passed by Congress. And I don't think they'd had experience with a mom uh, who was empowered and understood the law. And, um, and, it, and, and so and by the ADA, but, you mean the Americans you know, with Disabilities Act? The Americans with Disabilities Act, yeah, that, w that wouldn't actually come into full effect until uh, I was in eighth grade. But that was the moment that I learned that I had a right to be included. Um, it, and was the school worried? Were they more concerned about your safety or about liability? I think it's both. I think that um, 
you know, the, the, the people on the front lines, the, the, the teachers and the recess monitors, I think they really were thinking about safety, you know, and I think this is something that comes up in so many different ways um, with people with disabilities is a kind of protectionism. I think, you know, as you go up the, the, the totem pole, you know, you get to people whose job is to think about um, legal liability. But yeah, what I had to deal with on a number of occasions, whether it was learning how to downhill ski or do martial arts, et cetera, or, you okay, know, so can, can um, you, can you explain, uh, can you explain how you, how you learn to downhill ski? Cause I think, I think that, that strikes some people's ears as that seems very difficult to do and, and more dangerous than a play and more dangerous than a jungle gym. So it was a few years later, I was, uh, in sixth or seventh grade and, um, I wanted to participate in one of these ski school programs. And um, this time it was my dad. And so he said, all right, I'm gonna come up with you. And what we did was we would take the ski lift up to the top of the slope, and then he would describe, okay, here's kind of the layout uh, of the slope we're gonna go down. And then he would ski behind me, a few yards behind me and yell, you know, left, right, left, right, cliff. <laughs> so that's how we did it. and. Um, you know, people with disabilities are often, uh, even if they're encouraged to feel good about their minds, they're still made to feel ashamed of their bodies. And they're not, uh, their bodies are kind of the, the, the locus of pain and difference and, and illness and injury. And so it's really powerful when you give particularly a young person with a disability the opportunity to really revel in their in their physicality and enjoy their body and be able to do sports or do some kind of activity it it actually really upends some of the the deepest feelings of insecurity that they might have internally so your parents did amazing did an amazing job in showing you that you didn't have limits but obviously there still are some limitations because of your inability to see i want to read you something you said and, and ask you you know, what does it feel like to have to, even with all of your independence, uh, have to rely on other people more than the average person, perhaps? And you said once, um, you know, I rely on the generosity of cab drivers, baristas, and store clerks each time I make a purchase with cash. That I have rarely been ripped off is a testament to their honesty or my charm. I think it's probably both. But I cannot help but protest the perpetual necessity for either. How, how does that feel to have to rely on other people? Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was part of a movement uh, that was ultimately successful, led by the American Council of the Blind, to make our U.S. currency accessible. We're the only industrialized country where you can't tell, other than visually, the difference between a five dollar bill and a twenty dollar bill. Um, and so I got involved with that movement, and and um, it's true that that's one of the um, that's one of the areas where, um, you know, it, it, unfortunately, because those bills are not distinguishable right now, they will be soon. Um, a person who's blind or low vision uh, even can can be vulnerable. And the I think the important thing there is it's not just uh, a lack of independence when it comes to like a, a consumer but it's also the idea that you know someone who's blind ought to be able to work at a Starbucks. Uh, I had to plug a Seattle company uh, or another coffee shop. They ought to be able to do that and be able to make change for people. You 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 raise the issue of 
employment for people who are blind, you know, the overall unemployment rate in the country is at, you know, historical lows. But tell folks what the unemployment rate is among blind people in the United States. Yeah, well, as as recently as a few years ago, the unemployment rate for blind Americans was about 70%. And since then, and and I would also say of those who are employed, many are underemployed. And so we've got a long ways to go. So you, you know, you had a sort of mediocre academic career at Columbia, Oxford, Yale, after which at some point you decided to get into politics. Why on earth would you do that? Uh, mainly so that I could use the expression, I went from Braille to Yale <laughs> on podcasts like this and that's, get laugh, that's, uh, you know, laughs that, out of I it. believe that is going to be the title of the episode. Thank, thank you. For All that. right. Um, you know, without teachers, without social services, without the, the person who taught me how to use a cane or read Braille or use software on the computer that reads what's on the screen, without any of those things, I wouldn't have been able to travel the road from Braille to Yale. So as I graduated law school and, and came back and entered into private practice in Seattle, you know, I heard about all these attacks on social services. One of the things you would hear oftentimes would be education being pitted against social services. And I knew firsthand that you need both. You need good schools and you need the wraparound services to help kids. And so I, you know, I felt that that was a perspective that while there are a lot of people who care about these things, that there, there aren't a lot of people in public office who have actually had active case files with, with multiple state agencies and departments to help them get to where they are. And, you know, we're always, uh, in a way, competing with Silicon Valley. And I wanted our state to be more friendly to entrepreneurs. And, and so those two areas of interest, based on personal experience, led me to decide to run for the State House of Representatives in 2012. And you got elected first time out? I did. And, um, you know, it's the first time I decided to run, I went and spoke with a party leader in our state and said, uh, you know, I'm thinking about running for state house of representatives and here's my background and here are my interests. And, and he said, well, uh, in order to run for office, you know, you're gonna have to do a lot of doorbelling and, you know, going door to door and meeting voters. And, you know, I just don't know how would that ever work for you? He hadn't seen you ski. Exactly. Well, I, that's what I felt. I said, you know what? And I, and I just turned and said to him, you know what? I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you know, you may not hear this all that often, but running for state legislature is not actually going to be the hardest thing I've ever done. And there have been since then. I mean, there have been lots of instances when people have said, how could you do this? One of the jobs of the lieutenant governor is to preside over the state Senate and call on senators. So there were people during the campaign that would say, including my opponents, that would say, he can't do that. You know, don't vote for him because he's not going to be able sorry. to do wait, that. Wait, there were, you actually had opponents who said in the campaign that you wouldn't be able to do your job because you're blind? Yeah. That doesn't seem to be, it's both not right and also doesn't seem politically smart. So I don't, that, maybe that's why you beat those guys. It, it, there were other things. I mean, I, we had my own uh, version of a, of a birther conspiracy. People saying, is he even born in this country? Which, by the way, is not a prerequisite for state office, becoming right, lieutenant right. governor. It, you know, it happens. But yeah, there were people who would say, because I can't see senators, how am I going to be able to do my job? Well, guess what? We put touch screens on every senator's desk 
And when they want to speak, and because they're politicians, you know, they always want to speak, they touch the screen on their desk and it sends their name up to a computer where I'm standing at the front of the Senate chamber and I can feel their name in Braille in real time. So all their names pop up and I can call on the senator that makes sense for the debate at that time. So all these things can be solved. But the what, you know, I think the biggest obstacle, honestly, is impoverished imagination when people just can't imagine how could you do this. No, that, I think that's absolutely correct. So on Election Day, November 2016, there were two unlikely, among others, there were two unlikely victors in campaigns. One was you as lieutenant governor of the state of Washington. And the other one you may recall and have heard of was Donald Trump as president. Mm-hmm. What was election night like for you, given that? I, I still prize the uh, and value and cherish the 30 minutes in between my knowledge of those two events uh, <laughs> as some of the sweetest. You found out about your own victory first? Right. I, yeah, I found out my own victory first. And, um, you know, it wasn't looking good for Clinton, but it was like, we, you know, we, along with everyone else, we were like, this will be fine. It's We're going to have to think about why it was so close tomorrow, but, you know, she'll win. You know, for me, it was also a really bittersweet time on a personal level because my father passed away on October 13th, Goodness, just three weeks earlier. So um, the last few weeks of that campaign were kind of a blur for me. You know, I know my dad would have loved nothing more than to celebrate with us that night, and nothing would have made him more angry than Trump winning the, the election. What was the split in the vote on the presidential side in Washington state in 2016? Do you remember? Trump got under 40% in our right, state. So, so Trump got under 40%. That's still hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are Trump supporters in your state. And, and the reason I point that out, because you and I have talked about this, and I want you to share your views with the listeners. You know, in politics, at least if you're doing statewide politics and you think expansively about bringing people over to your point of view and persuasion... We talk about persuasion a lot on the show because people seem not to be in that business anymore. You know, they just slice the electorate up. And you talk about the way that it makes sense to have conversations with people who disagree with you. And those include Trump voters yeah. who are in your state and your lieutenant governor for everyone in Washington state, whether they supported Clinton or Trump. How do you go about talking with people who disagree with you? I think you have to start by showing them basic respect. It sounds like common sense, but it's it's really hard. I think that what a lot of voters felt was ignored, disrespected, like they weren't being listened to. And I find that actually my own story from the playground and beyond of, of having felt marginalized resonates with people. Everybody knows somebody with a disability in a way that's different from, say, race or gender or sexual identity, disability actually can be an inroad into talking about respect and opportunity and uh, and even equality and some of these things that can sometimes be very charged in our debate. So, so I try to share my own personal story. I try to listen to them, and I try to show up to things that matter to them. You know, I try to go around the state go to county fairs, show up at things, knowing that probably 75% of these people didn't vote for me. Would some political strategists say, well, don't waste your time. The important thing for you, Cyrus, or any 
you know, political person running is to increase the turnout in the neighborhoods where there are people who are likely to be progressives like you. I mean, I like the message, but explain why it makes sense. First of all, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I mean, I think that this is my job, so I would, I should do it and I would do it irrespective of the electoral outcome. And in a lot of ways, actually, I mean, I don't do it. I don't expect that these people will turn on a dime and all of a sudden start voting Democratic. It's going to take a long time and it's going to take more than just one elected official for Democrats to show rural voters and and suburban voters that we care about everybody. So it's the right thing to do. I don't think that it's mutually exclusive. And I actually think that it allows you to actually get to the heart of the matter if you meet with different types of folks in different parts of our state, different parts of our country, and hear their challenges and recognize how many shared issues and challenges there are. I mean, climate change... Right, you know, right now in Seattle, it's hazy and smoky all over because these wildfires have gone crazy. Well, those same wildfires are devastating the rural parts of our state. And so in a very poignant way, it's like Mother Nature is reminding us that we all live under one sky in one shared reality. So I don't think I don't see them at all as mutually exclusive. And I think actually it benefits us as uh, public officials to do that. One of the reasons I think people will say that Trump got elected there's a lot of disaffection among the electorate for establishment politicians, right? They talk a lot. They have gridlock a lot. They don't really help us so much. And they're repelled by politicians. Is that right? What is it that people should expect from their representatives? I'm going to take a big risk on this podcast, and I'm going to say something (laughs) positive about Donald Trump that is not a backhanded compliment. Donald Trump... I think more than any other president that I can think of in recent history really is working to follow through on his campaign promises. Those campaign promises are heinous and awful and un-American, but but he is going to do everything he can to build that wall. You know, he's going to do everything he can to reduce immigration in this country. He he said he'd get out of the Paris Accord. He got out of the Paris Accord. He said he'd get out of the Iran deal, get out of the Iran deal. He said he's going to actually talk tough with China, as many other presidential candidates, Democrat and Republican, have said they would do. And he's actually done that. You know, the analog would be that when President Obama was elected, had he come in and within the first six months said, you know what, I'm shutting Guantanamo. And I'm going to send these guys to your federal prisons in Alabama or South Carolina or Virginia, and Congress better figure out what to do about it. You know, but it, but, it's, and, but it's, sort so, of, it's sort of fascinating, right? Because I, I get your point. The positive way to, to, to describe it is that he sticks to his guns and he adheres to his promises. But there's also the art of compromise. And I thought we were electing a president who likes to tout his ability to make a deal. And so on the other side of the coin you know, maybe he would have greater approval than he has if he actually backed off a little bit on some of the things that he said he'd want. Oh, for sure. I mean, he's anything but a deal maker. He's walked away, you know, countless times from immigration deals. And in his stubbornness, he's also, you know, done it in the worst possible way, using children as as hostages, etc. So I completely agree with you about all that. But I think what people 
are tired of is politicians that will say anything and say, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. And then they get in and then they view their job in Congress or in any other office as continuing to be a spokesperson for the things they said they would do, as opposed to working really hard to accomplish some version of it or some compromise based on it. And I think that, you know, again, I'd like to see our Democratic nominee in 2020 be someone who really takes their campaign promises seriously. And by the way, I'm not saying that President Obama didn't. I mean, obviously, healthcare was front and center, and he did get that done. But I think there's a kind of a kind of cynicism about politicians. And I mean, um, because politicians, they don't only compromise with other folks, they have to compromise within their own agendas. And we've heard Rahm Emanuel and others say, these were the kinds of conversations going on in the White House. We can either hold people accountable for engaging in torture, or we can have health care. And you can't put too much on the table because you only have limited political capital because very quickly you're running for office again. And so you have to be stark in the choices you make. Even though you promise 10 things, when you come into office, these conventional politicians say, you got to pick one or two because that's all you can do, man. What I would argue in response to that is to say, actually, if you can do one and you do it well, you build momentum and you get more capital. Capital is, in other words, I don't view it in that kind of a zero-sum way. I guess, although just to challenge that for a second, Barack Obama, as you said, one of his singular achievements was enacting the Affordable Care Act. And lots of people would say that success, which alienated a lot of people on the other side and was largely accomplished without any votes from the other side, is what caused him not to be able to achieve further things that he wanted to, fair or not. I mean, I think 2010, you know, was going to be just as 2018, God willing, will be uh, a wave year. My point is, how did they use those two years in 2009, 2010? And not even what could or couldn't be done, but what the perception of the voters is, is that if we're only going to do one or two things, let's at least be bold with those. You know, I think that's why you saw Bernie Sanders uh, get so much energy in 2016 behind his presidential bid. And I think you're going to see in 2020 people really wanting a nominee who can espouse as bold a positive vision as Donald Trump has expressed on the negative side. Yeah, one, one thing that we talk about a lot on the show and, and generally in American discussion of politics and the presidency is, does this president have autocratic impulses? Does he just want everything to go the way he wants it to go by fiat, by executive order? That's a complaint that's made about other presidents too, but I think Trump has taken it to an extreme. And we say, oh, that's terrible. But isn't there, and I think I've heard you say this, isn't there some logic to some people being attracted to a leader who, by whatever method, even if it's by bypassing the Congress or whatever else, at least tries to get something done? I, I mean, there's a balance, right? I think that there's there's a spectrum, and you could be at the very process end of that spectrum, process heavy end, and people are really frustrated with that. But what I'd say is, look, why are mayors so popular right now uh, compared to other executive office holders? Why are governors looked to? And in large part, it's because they have been as bold as they can be without, look, I'm not saying, you, you know, you don't, you don't violate separation of powers, any of these things that Trump has, has sought to do. You certainly don't enrich yourself personally the way he's doing, but that, you know, mayors have been able to use their office 
to b break log jams. You know, I remember I met Rahm Emanuel one time. Uh, he was talking about some controversy in Chicago, and he said, you know, there were all these stakeholders, and some of them said we ought to do this, some of them said we ought to do that. And so finally I said, you know what, I'm going to decide this the democratic way. We're going to do this democratic way. The elected mayor is going to decide. I don't think that that needs to be hostile to the legislative branch. But I think voters really want us, when we get elected, to do something more than grandstand. You know, talk, I often say more to than people, talk. People are sick of talk. Yeah, more than talk. I mean, you know, you have politicians who are out there, elected office holders who are out there, and they think the best thing that they could do in public office is to get arrested. But really, members of Congress are the 535 Americans who can do something about this. I want them in their offices and on the Senate and House floor doing something to fix this problem and to check this president. So it's not just a question of executive power. It's also about legislative power. And I think voters are tired of people that just jockey for spots on podcasts and MSNBC interviews or Fox News interviews, et cetera. Don't knock the podcast jockey. No, it's an important part of it. But I want people to come on these shows and talk about what they've done and what they're doing, not bemoan the way the rest, you know, the way the rest of Americans are doing. Because well, so let's, let's talk about that instead of bemoaning. Obviously, you are where you are in life in part because of the educational opportunities you had and you took full advantage of them and, you know, did amazing work in multiple schools. What are you doing to improve higher educational opportunities for people in Washington? Yeah, that's that's been our focus in my office. And, um, and I'll tell you why. When I ran in 2016, when I was traveling around the state, I would hear this, this sentence, this sentiment uttered over and over again by, frankly, by both Democrats and Republicans. And the, the sentiment was, quote, college isn't for everyone. It's often not said from a place of malice or hostility. It's often said from a place of compassion, you know, but I heard echoes of the things that I had experienced as a child and people saying, um, you know, uh, people lowering expectations, you know, and I still do this when people say college isn't for everyone. I ask them, I say, so, so let me ask you this. Did you go to college? And it turns out that almost inevitably they did. And then I'll ask them, well, what do your kids do? You know, or what are you planning for your kids? Their kids are young. And then they say, oh, you know, my, my daughter's going to the University of Washington and my son's going to Whitman College. Right. And I'm like, okay, so college is for you. College is for your kids. Who is it that you're saying college isn't for? Right. And I think we know. What's the answer? It's, yeah, what's the answer to that? It's, I mean, because we know, because we know who's not going to college. And we know it's kids from communities of color, kids from rural parts of our state, kids with disabilities, kids whose parents didn't go to college. The people who are saying that you're describing, who say college is not for everyone, are they saying that for some people there should be no further education past high school? Or are they saying, uh, you know, there should be vocational, vocational training, that sort of thing? Or They're saying, you know what, there are plenty of jobs today. We ought to really focus our high schools on preparing uh, Washingtonians for the kind of technical jobs that exist today. The problem is, the reason they wouldn't send their own kids down that path is that we know very well that those jobs are very unlikely to be there in 10 years, and certainly not in 40 years. That 17-year-old needs to be thinking about preparing for that and, and preparing herself to be able to be mobile in the economy. And I want to be clear, I'm not hostile to learning a vocational trade, but my, my project 
in, in our office has been, how do we connect that with a bachelor's degree? So we created a program the legislature has funded called Complete Washington. And the idea is to take folks who are working, they're already in a job, and maybe they've done an apprenticeship, to take them and connect that prior learning and their work experience with a bachelor's degree through online education, through quality on, not Trump University, but actual quality online college. Is part of the problem that it's hard to convince everyone of the value of education? I think there's a, a kind of bougie guilt on the left, people bougie who- guilt. I haven't heard that phrase in a while, bougie guilt. Well, right, like there's this, I, there's this kind of this sense that they don't want to be offensive to others who haven't gone to college. And, and so they say things like, well, you know, I, you know, if you say college is, it, you know, ought to be for everybody, then you sound like an elitist. You know, it, it, what it reminds me of is when Paul Ryan last year would say about healthcare, um, well, you know, not everyone necessarily wants to buy health insurance. You know, we ought to give people money in their pocket and they can make the decision for themselves. And it's like, Paul Ryan, you don't know anybody. No one in your social circle or family doesn't have health insurance. You know very well that everybody wants to have health insurance to protect them in the event of an illness. And so it's just disingenuous to say that. I think this is in the same way, we know that everyone ought to have the opportunity to go and get a college degree, which will mean they'll make 90% more on average than their colleagues without a college degree. We know that the jobs that the robots will take over last are going to be ones uh, that require critical thinking and persuasion and communication skills and these kinds of things. And so let's just call a spade a spade. And I don't think it's offensive to people. In fact, when you go and meet with communities that don't have access or can't afford a higher education, they are really eager. Folks are eager to hear about plans and ideas to expand access to college. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know from being from an immigrant family, the kinds of sacrifices people make. Oh, the, the, look, for my parents, the, the thing that they cared about the most, any kind of educational aid for me and my brother, and they would say that that faith in education was vindicated because this many years later, uh, one of their sons is a successful multimillionaire businessman and the other one has a podcast. So you know, their, their, dream, their, <laughs> their dream is, no, but kidding aside, yeah, I think there's lots and lots of people in America who feel that way. There are certain immigrant communities who came to this country for that purpose, for the, for the better education. They came for that for that sole purpose. And I mean, it's why my dad came here himself, but it's why it's why they stayed. And it's it's one of the reasons they stayed. It's why so many people come here and, and nothing is more heartwarming. I got a chance to give a couple commencement speeches this year, you know, and I'm sitting up there on stage. And so I'm hearing these graduates thank the president, the provost as they walk across the stage. And it's, it just brings tears to your eyes how excited people are when they get this degree. And I want that for everybody, recognizing that we might have to reform our higher ed system a little bit more if we really want to reach everybody. We have to certainly make it more affordable and we have to connect it to some of the more uh, vocational work and uh, training like apprenticeship programs that exist out there. So we're running out of time and I could go on with you for hours and hours on lots of things and hopefully we can have you back. I have a very simple question for you because I've been thinking about it for a while and there's a lot of debate about what this word means in the current moment in America. What is patriotism to you? You know, I think about what it is that allowed me 
a three-time cancer surviving, fully blind Iranian American from a mixed religion immigrant family to be able to serve in this role. And I think it is the welcoming spirit and the desire to continually renew ourselves as a country. It's love of that. It's love of, you know, no sacred cows. It's love of we will continually question and rebuild and innovate and challenge ourselves to be made new again, most tangibly through immigration, but also through disruption, innovation and technology and, and the arts and new ideas. And that, that to me is what I love about this country. I don't think any other country on earth was based on an idea and that idea continues to exist and it continues to get reimagined as more and more people are brought into it. The, the question is, as we continue to evolve as a country and as more and more people get to have a voice in this great American idea, can we talk to one another? Can we communicate with one another in a way that, um, that is respectful? in a way that demonstrates that we're not threatening one another, that we all just want to be included. And I think that that can be done, but it does require those of us who are people of color, those of us who are, who do have disabilities, and I know this can be frustrating, but it does require us to do a little bit of that extra work of reaching out to those who may feel threatened. And I know it can feel like, why do we have to do this over and over and over again? And Van Jones makes this point. It is unfair. It's deeply unfair because we haven't done anything wrong. But at the same time, I want the future of this country to be one that is knit together and where white, black, Iranian-American, Indian-American, you know, all of us feel that we are better off because of this. And right now we're just not there and so that might mean that we have to do a little bit of the extra work right now, but I think the payoff for future generations will be tremendous. This idea that we're ever improving, more inclusive, as President Obama reminded us, always becoming a more perfect union, we have to do that hard work and make sacrifices. And sometimes those who have to do that have been the ones who've been uh, oppressed historically. But let's show by example what makes this country great. So that's a very good answer with which I agree. So final question to you then, would you take the opportunity here and now on this podcast to announce your candidacy for president? I believe you have just cleared the age requirement very recently. What do you, what do you say? What I do you thought, say, Cyrus? I, I, I thought you and I were friends. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so announce on my podcast. What's best, you wanted what's best for me. And um, uh, I will, uh, I'll tell you. I would, vote for, is, I would vote for you, uh, sir. There, I appreciate that. There is uh, another person from our state who is seriously considering uh, running for president. So I've been told. I don't know that firsthand. Jeff Bezos. Uh, <laughs> I think. I think Let he's. The record uh, reflect. I said I Jeff Bezos' his name, and you laughed. That's not going to be good for you. I think he's got enough on his hands right now. Okay, so, so here, here we have it. You do not rule it out. Well, no, no, no. I will say this. I was born in the United States. Yeah, so you say. So I want. <laughs> so I wanted. To, I, I will be on record as having I've heard said rumors that. To the People contrary, can read so, that however they uh, want. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah I, right. I, right. I believe you. Well, look, it's been great having you on the show. As I said at the beginning, what you've done and and how you've achieved what you've achieved is is really inspiring to a lot of people. So thanks for sharing your story with us, and I hope you can be back soon. Preet, thank you so much. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Cyrus Habib. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. With help this week from Gabrielle Lewis. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Jake McAbee, and Vinay Basti. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.